So the Bible has so much to say about our heart. You ever notice that? We're told in Proverbs 4.23 that out of the heart proceed the issues of life. What's going on in the heart? And when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the inception of thoughts and the, the processor of thoughts. You know, we have things happen to us and we process it, don't we? We're women. We're like, hmm, that look meant that they've hated me since I was two years old. You know, it, I, you know, honestly, sometimes I will look at somebody and I will think their outfit is so cute. And I walk away and they're like, you gave me that up and down. And I was like, but it was a nice up and down. But we process. As women, we always take things to the next level, don't we? My, Brian's always like, how did you come up with that? And what did I do to make you come up with that? I mean, he gives the illustration, which I wish he wouldn't, but he does. Of when he eats an Indian meal and he loves it, I'm sure he's looking for an Indian wife that will cook him a good curry. Because I extrapolate. It's, it's what I do. I extrapolate. I'm not proud of it, but it's what I do. But that's the processes go on in our heart. Our heart contains biases and prejudices and sins. And we often use those things as the, as the tools by which we process our thoughts. And that's why, that's why it's so important that our hearts be given to Jesus Christ entirely. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We become the outcome of our thoughts. Now, the natural estate of our hearts in Jeremiah 17, 9, you're like, what does this have to do with chapter 10? You'll see. <laughs> Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that our hearts are desperately wicked. They're beyond self-improvement. We're also told that our our hearts are deceptive and they're deceived. We can't even know our own hearts. We'll we'll look at our heart and go, it looks pretty good to me. You know, I I think I'm nice. And then you talk to your dog, if your dog talks. And says, she's been ignoring me. She's made me sit on my pillow. She's not letting me in the kitchen. Our mouths will betray our hearts. You know, it's, we think we're covering it up. I've often said this. It's a really gross illustration, but it's my own, so I'm going to give it to you. That bitterness is like bad breath. Everybody else knows you have it, but you. And everybody else is affected adversely by that. Our mouths betray our hearts. In Matthew 12, 34, it tells us that out of the abundance of the heart or the overflow, overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus said, this is great. If your heart is filled with good things, then those good things will flow out of your heart. But if your heart is filled with bad things, then bad things will come out of your, your, your mouth. Years ago, um, when I was a little girl, one of my favorite fairy tales, don't ask me why, but was about these, these two um, sisters, half sisters. And the one um, sister they made her, it was kind of like a Cinderella thing. They made her do all the uh, drudgery and the hard work in the house. And one day she was getting water for the house and she went and a, a little old lady was there and said, 
may I please have a drink? And she said, of course. And she let her bucket go down deep in the well. And she, she brought up this water for this older woman. And then, you know, was trying to serve this woman in, in the greatest capacity. And all of a sudden, the older woman shed her garments and showed that she was actually a beautiful fairy princess. And from now on, Whenever this woman spoke, this young girl spoke, out of her mouth would pour out diamonds and rubies and precious gems. So she went home, and as she began to tell her stepmother and stepsister about what had happened at the well, all these jewels were pouring out of her mouth. Well, the stepmother did not want this girl upstaging her own daughter, so she sent her daughter to that same well. Well, that daughter the mean one, was looking for an older, dignified woman. And instead, this high gentry woman riding on a steed came up to the well and said, you girl, get me some water. And she said, get it yourself. I'm waiting for somebody. And she showed her true nature. And all of a sudden again, the woman on the steed threw off her garments and showed that she was a fairy princess. And she said, because there is evil in your heart, whenever you open your mouth, scorpions, toads, and snakes will come out. Isn't that a nice story? (laughs) And so she went home and every time she proceeded to talk, her mother said, shut your mouth. So when the king who was impoverished came looking through the little village for a wife, he was told about the two sisters and which one do you think he picked? And she greatly enriched her husband. She greatly enriched the kingdom and she greatly enriched all those she spoke to. Now, when I heard that story as a little girl, I'm like, I know, I know what I want in my heart. Jesus said out of the treasury of a heart, a man brings things either good or evil. It has to do with what's going on in the heart. This is the way Matthew twelve thirty five NLT puts it. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. No wonder Jesus is after our hearts. Years ago, I went to a retreat, and their name tags were these hearts, these clay hearts, and they'd written everyone's name on it. And the pastor's wife said, we handmade these hearts and each one has a thumbprint on it because we were thinking about how the Lord fashions our hearts and what he cares most about is ownership of your heart. You know, once Jesus gets your heart, everything else that we want to be follows, follows from, flows from, from Jesus dwelling in our hearts. Ephesians 3.17 tells us that God desires that Christ would dwell or live or actually make his home in our hearts richly by faith. It is so important every day to do a heart presentation to the Lord. Say, Lord, here's my heart you know it better than I do. And I need you to come in. Our lives cannot be changed until Jesus is residing in them by faith. But great things follow 
when Jesus resides in our hearts. And in chapter 10, I found four different things that come when Jesus resides in the heart. The first thing is confession. Confession. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So confession. Next, there is a compelling to communicate the gospel. A compelling. We want we want to communicate. We want others to know and to communicate. Thirdly, there's a concentration on knowing God's word. We want to grow in faith. We want to know the word of God and what it says and what the promises are. And finally, there is a greater commitment to seeing others saved. A greater commitment. Romans chapter 10 Paul is continuing to answer the question, what about the Jews? Again, the Romans are looking on and saying, has God given up on the nation of Israel? And Paul's saying, no, he has not. Let me tell you about God's plans for Israel as a nation. And in chapter 11, we'll see the culmination of those plans, which actually are... um, an insight into the book of Revelation because Revelation, except for the first three chapters, is all about God's dealing with the Jews. We're in heaven, kind of watching, but it's about God dealing with his people and bringing back the nation of Israel to himself. And chapter 11 will deal with that. So we'll have a little synopsis of Revelation in that too. But what Paul is saying right now at the present time, God, God is working without distinction by faith. This is how tribes, kindreds, no matter what your ancestry, you must come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. God has done the work through Jesus Christ of atoning for your sins. He is offering the gift of righteousness, not through the law, but through Jesus Christ alone. We're told in verses 12 and 13 that God is making no distinction between Jew and Greek. Why? Because it is the same Lord. Jesus died for all men, regardless of color, language, or culture. He is the Savior of the world, according to verse 13. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. Whoever. Don't you love the word whoever? It's not like whatever, it's whoever. It's me. You know, I I read things like that and I'm like, I'm in, I'm in. I'm a whoever. I I just love words like whoever. Especially when you're having a bad day. You're like, whoever, you still want me. Thank you, Jesus. Whoever calls upon the name. Now, when we talk about the name of the Lord Jesus, the word name, to the, the biblical generation. Your name was everything. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, a, a good name is to be chosen above all things. It would be your reputation and your testimony. So when Paul is talking about whoever calls on the name of Jesus Christ, he's saying whoever believes in the, in the testimony of Jesus Christ, what Jesus has done will be saved. Now the Gentile in Rome might ask, what about their zeal? 
Haven't you heard people say, but they're so sincere about people of other faiths, but they're so sincere. I had a very sincere friend, very sincere. She was a Hindu. She was so sincere. And one day when she was at Starbucks reading the Bhagavad Gita, she got saved. And she said she still doesn't know because there she was reading the Hindu Hindu script and the Lord Jesus made it so clear that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And she gave her heart to Jesus. Amazing. But you, you might say, what about the zeal? I mean, you think about the Jews. They had zeal to the temple, zeal to the law, zeal to the system, zeal to the land. But Paul is, in fact, saying zeal is not enough, and I ought to know because I was zealous. I was so zealous, he tells us in other portions of scriptures, that he persecuted the church. He persecuted believers. He became murderous in his zeal. He was dangerous because of his zeal. Zeal must have, and he says about the the zeal of the Jews, that it's not according to knowledge. Zeal without knowledge is a very dangerous thing. I, I don't know. Have you ever like been zealous in your lecture to one of your kids? And they're like, mom, I didn't do it. You're like, darn, that was a good lecture. Totally wasted. Where's the kid that did it? You know? But zeal without knowledge is dangerous. And, and why is their zeal misdirected? Because they're ignorant of God's righteousness. In verse three, Paul talks about this ignorance and he says, they don't understand how high the standard of righteousness is. When God gave the law, he's saying, this has got to be done 24 seven inside your mind, inside your heart and outside in your actions. Jesus took the law of God in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7, and he elevated it to a higher level. Have you ever read that Sermon on the Mount and said, how can you do this? How can I love my enemies and do good to those? I mean, it's like it is so beyond what we are capable of. And that should make us cry out saying, Lord, I need you. My heart can't do these things. But their zeal is because they thought they could do it. They thought that the standard of righteousness was attainable. They didn't understand the inaccessibility of the standard. As God said, there is none righteous, no, not one. So because they thought that they could establish their own righteousness by adding to the law, This is what they did to the Sabbath law. You shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Did you know they added 39 chapters? 39 chapters about how to fulfill the Sabbath. They added rule upon rule, taking the Sabbath that was meant to be a blessing and making it a burden. They said in their minds, we can't keep this law, but we can keep this one. So they did this substitution thing. God says, the, the, uh, God, Jesus, God, the son, says, you shall honor your mother and father. And he said, but to, to you, what you did is you said, do you know what? We'll just say Corbin. 
which means that any honor that we would have given you or we owe you to take care of you, we're just giving it to the temple, Corbin. And he said, in that way, you have nullified the law. You have made it of no value. And other things you do, teaching as the word of God, the doctrine of men, and you have nullified the power of the word. Then Paul says, they have not submitted to God's way of righteousness. And he says, for Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Verse four, in other words, the whole objective, the whole purpose of the law was Christ. He was the reason the law was given. It was one to hold the people just to protect them until they could get to Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you something very personal. When I was raising my children, I realized something about my children. The ages of 15 through 20 are the stupid years. They do stupid, stupid things. And I became the Moses of my house. I had to protect those kids from themselves. I became the law and the law giver. And was I oppressive? Okay, yes. But I wanted to protect them because I knew if I could just get them through the stupid years to a commitment to Jesus Christ, I could have my hands off and the Holy Spirit would take over. And that's what I did. I just had to get them through the stupid years. Well, I would call Israel and the law the stupid years. And God is saying, I just need to protect them till we can get to the Messiah. Jesus is the end of the law to those that believe. He's the objective. He's the goal. He's also the termination. All of the law was about him, that he is the standard that God accepts, that he kept the law perfectly. As it says in Isaiah, behold, my servant, he will take my law and make it glorious. Jesus is the end of the law. He's what the law is about. He's the embodiment of the law itself. Moses, the lawgiver, wrote to the people, verses 5 through 8, he he was showing them it's not attainable. You can't go up into heaven and, and make it happen. You can't go down to hell and make it happen. It's not by your efforts. It's not by what you do that you can make this happen. And he's saying to the people also, it It's not too hard. It's not about what you do or too lofty. The way of salvation is by faith. It's in your mouth. It's near you. It's attainable by faith, by believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. Salvation takes place in the heart. With the heart, one believes to salvation with the heart. When anyone believes in his heart, the testimony of Jesus, confession is made with the mouth. That word confess, I love, it's homologio or logio. And it means to agree with the word. And we have the logo spelling. So this means the same word. And what we're believing in our heart and confessing with our mouth is the same word. We are saying that Jesus is the word, that he has done everything that the Bible says he has done, that he is the son of God, that he is absolutely righteous, that he died for the sins of men, paying the price, 
dying in our place, rising again from the dead, that he alone could survive the wrath of God. Jesus took on flesh and died for our sins because he knew, he's a warrior, he knew that he alone could survive the wrath of God. We're not righteous enough. No man has ever been righteous enough to survive the wrath of God. The devil had a hold of every man until Jesus Christ. But Jesus would say of the devil, he has nothing on me. He has no foothold. He has no grip. He has nothing he can hold against me. Therefore, Jesus could survive the wrath of God. He could live through the wrath of God. He could be victorious over the wrath of man. Jesus and Jesus alone. And then Jesus rose again from the dead, proving the purity of his life, proving the power of his love, proving the purpose of his coming and the perfectness of his sacrifice, assuring us of our own justification and rightness before God. This is what Jesus has done for us. But God is continuing to extend the invitation to the Jews and to all the world by faith. We have the continuing witness of creation, according to Romans 10, 18. You know, I was, today I was just tripping out on trees. Don't ask me why, probably because I'm sick. But I was, I had this fig tree that someone gave me. And when I, when I got it, it was completely bare. I mean, I'm like, I wonder if this thing is alive. And you know what? A leaf just came out. It just like popped out. It wasn't there like three days ago, but it's there now. And it looks like a hand, like, hey, it's right at the top. Like, hi, I'm alive. And then these other ones popped out. Like this morning, it's like, yeah, we're here too. And I'm like, oh, look at the fig tree. Even as the leaf is coming out, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking these trees that look dormant, they look dead, but there's life in them that you can't see. And the variety of trees. You know, the, we have the fig tree, we have the palm tree, peach trees, eucalyptus trees, all these different types of trees. And they all speak of design and a creator. You know, we've got these biologists going, no, no, it just happened. Well, I'd like to see them make a tree. On the day that they can create a tree out of nothing, bara, because they said nothing created everything, the day that they can create something out of nothing, I will change the way I believe, but not till I see them make something out of nothing because it can't be done. But God, but God, see, there was power in his word to, to speak material things into a vacant universe. This is our God. This is the power of our God. Nature is a witness. Trees, blades of grass, flowers. You know, I was thinking, we look at an airplane and we're like, man, it's so great. We look at a car and as long as it's running, we're like, oh man, what an incredible invention. You know, we marvel at buildings and things that men made and we give credit to who? Men, don't we? And yet we'll look at a tree and we'll go, wow, so cool how nothing comes out of nothing. No, something comes out of, no. You know, a tree is much more complex than a Boeing 747. 
much more. Your eye, a, a human fly. My, my son-in-law, he's a biologist and he loves etymology, which is the study of insects. But he was just, he was talking about how intricate the eye is, but then he goes on to talk about a human fly. Uh, human fly. Yeah. I haven't seen one yet. I've acted like one. I haven't seen one. Great. No, a, a insect fly and how complicated they are and, and, how, and their design, their aerodynamic design. Birds. Okay, I got to stop because I can go on and on and on. But then in verse 19, he says, not only that, but God is using the Gentiles that are born again, their testimony to provoke the Jews to jealousy. What is jealousy? Jealousy is when you say, I want what you've got, right? Or envy, I want what you have. He says, I want the Jews to look at you and say, I want what you have. I want that peace. I want that rest. I want that Messiah. I want that joy. I want that assurance. And and God predicted this in the Old Testament when he said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. Remember, we come from every place and everywhere. I will anger you by a foolish nation. We are those people who are not a nation because we are made up of all nations. And the transformation in our lives is undeniable. We Gentiles are laying claim by faith and receiving all the promises that were given to the Jews that they never attained to because they sought it through the law and we've sought it and attained it through faith in Jesus Christ. Last year when I was in Israel, we were asked to come to the Knesset. We're sitting at this great big table with the new cabinet uh, members of Israel's parliament. And they said to us, we need you born again Christians. We're not born again, but we need you. You are the only people standing with us. You are the only people in the whole world that do not hate us and are helping us. It is you and you alone. And then they said, and and there was the man, your founder, Chuck Smith. He helped us out so much. He loved us. And I said, that was my dad. And they're like, oh, what, what? It was kind of fun. Um, And I said, he did love Israel. And, you know, he gave us that love for Israel too. But they were saying, you, you have, you know, the peace, you have the love, you have the joy. They were, they were looking, they were marveling. They said, we have never met anyone like Calvary Chapel. When everybody else stops visiting and touring Israel, Calvary keeps coming. Doesn't matter what's going on. They keep coming. They walk in faith. And they were just talking about Calvary Chapel and the glory of Calvary. And that Calvary is about the only movement. They said other evangelical movements are turning against us, but not Calvary Chapel. I was like, bring it on. Yes, yes, yes. So good. Yeah. I mean, I love other evangelicals. I just like Calvary Chapel the best. But again, these Gentiles who do, did not seek it before, we didn't seek it. We, weren't, we didn't have covenants. We didn't have promises. Remember in Ephesians, we were outside of everything. But we have attained it. But we're told in verse 21 that God still holds his arms out to his people. 
The way of salvation through Jesus the Messiah continues to be open to anyone who will look to Jesus by faith. They will be saved. As Jesus said in um, John chapter 3, reminding Nicodemus, who is Jewish, of the serpent that was raised up in the wilderness. And anyone who was bitten by the serpent could look at the brass serpent on the pole and be saved, be healed. So as we look in faith to Jesus Christ, who was lifted up for our sins, his judgment against the serpent, we are saved. And anyone who will look to Jesus will be saved. So there are certain indications that we have Jesus in our heart, that we have believed in our heart. Now, I think this is important because the devil will say to you sometimes, are you really saved? You're not saved. And you're like, I'm not? No. You know, you only thought you were, oh no, I'm so self-deceived. Well, let me give you four. I'm going to actually throw in a fifth that's not in this chapter because I just realized it begins with a C, so let's throw it in with the other C's. But first of all, I want to say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So first is confess. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, because see, your mouth will confess what's going on in your heart. It will say the things that are going on in your heart. Remember again, Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. When Jesus resides in our hearts, we can't help but confess Jesus. In Acts 4.20, Peter and John were arrested by the Sanhedrin, and they were told, don't you ever speak in this man's name again. We know that the man who is, was lame at the gate beautiful that we all saw is walking and leaping and praising God by the name of Jesus Christ. But we're asking you, don't use that name even if it's got power, even if it heals, don't use that name. And Peter and John said this, we cannot help ourselves. We must, we must talk about it. We can't help ourselves. And that's what happens when Jesus is residing in your heart. You can't help but confess Jesus. You can't help but agree, homologio, with what God has done and said. Instead of our hearts betraying the evil that is in them, because the treasury of the heart becomes filled with Jesus and ruled by Jesus, the outflow, the confession of our heart is Jesus. And we find that we can't help ourselves. I, I remember being at UCI and in my Spanish class at UCI. And I don't know, uh, something, I was just talking to this girl and I said something and the whole class went quiet and they were staring at me. And I looked at her and I said, what, what's going on? She said, you said Jesus. I said, yeah, I say that a lot. And everyone's just staring at me. And I'm like, I believe in Jesus. I know he's the son of God. He saved me. And I read this girl said to me, whatever you have, I want. And I said, I have Jesus. She's like, okay, how do I do that? How do I get that? I want that. And I said, well, let me tell you about him. You know, the testimony of Jesus. I remember being at a baby shower with my neighbors. And I won the game. And when I won the game, I said, oh, praise the Lord. Everyone just stops. But in my family, growing up the way we did, when something good happened, we either said hallelujah or praise the Lord. 
Yeah, we didn't say yippee, jumping beans. We didn't say any of those things. And when something went really bad, we said rats. My dad taught us that, rats. But, you know, there I am at the shower, like, oh, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And they're all like, you know, I didn't realize we had a raving Pentecostal. But, you know, that's from the overflow of the heart. Secondly, and I'm going to throw this one in, we are convicted of sin. You know what? If Jesus isn't in your heart, you don't care if you sin. Some people, in fact, we're told, um, we'll be told later in Romans that there are people that, actually we're told Romans chapter one, but we'll get it again, that there are people that actually take pride in their sin. I mean, have you ever heard testimonies where people are like, you're a little prideful about that old life. What about the new life? Have you ever heard people kind of take pride in their sin? What they used to do? And, and, but when Jesus resides in your heart, there's this conviction. Okay, I might have told you this story, but I'll tell you again. But I might not have told you this story. I made dinner the other night, and I wasn't feeling good. And I didn't call Brian into dinner. And he, um, he came late, and everything was cold. And he's like, why didn't you call me into dinner? And I said, I did. And he goes, I didn't hear you. I'm like, oh, well, that's your problem. I lied. I fully lied. I out now lied to the man. And then my pride got to me, like, I'm not telling him because then he'll come late to dinner and, you know, my, my calling will mean nothing. And I felt the Holy Spirit going, tell Brian the truth. And I'm like, no, he'll have something over me for the rest of my life. He'll bring up this time. Remember when you didn't call me to dinner and you said you did? I'm like, no, I've got a really good reputation. I don't, I don't want to ruin it. I literally felt the Holy Spirit wrestling with me. Like, I couldn't sleep at night. I look over, he's sleeping, because he's not lying. He's just, you know, late to dinner and eating cold food. But me, and I mean, like, I literally, I came to church. I'm sitting, I'm listening to the Bible study. I'm taking notes, and the Holy Spirit is, that man up there preaching, you need to say you're sorry, and you need to confess to. I'm like, oh, God, can't I just confess to you? I mean, we both know I lied. (laughs) I'm okay with you. And the Lord was like, do it. And so I come home that afternoon and I made him a dinner and I kept it hot. And it, he came home and I said, he said, I need to talk to you. And I said, before you say anything, I got to tell you something. You were right. I didn't call you to dinner last night. And he said, why? Did you, why didn't you call me? I don't know. I knew you were going to ask me why. And that was one of the reasons I didn't want to confess. You know, everything I didn't want to have happen. And it's like, he said, well, I knew it. I knew you'd say that too. <laughs> and, he, and he's like, so why did you lie then? I don't know. I don't know. My simple nature. It's just something that came to the surface that needs to be confessed and repented of. And so I repent. But I tell you, I was under so much conviction. I literally thought I was going to get hit by a car and go to heaven on the way home from church. Like, they all want to kill me before I can confess, you know? And, and the whole time I'm making him the meal, I'm like, Lord, see, I'm just making him a really good meal. I don't need to confess it to him. See how good I, me, me who teaches every Friday. And now I've had to confess to you. It's like, oh, don't sin. But we're convicted. Okay, so that's not in my notes, but it really is good. Second, oh, 
So now it's thirdly. I'm going to have to redo my numbers. Thirdly, we are compelled to communicate the testimony of Jesus Christ. Again, it's from the overflow of our hearts. In verses 14 and 15, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of them who bring, uh, who, who preach the gospel of peace to bring glad tidings of good things. How beautiful. You see, the testimony of Jesus Christ becomes so beautiful to us. We want others to know what he has done. We want to herald it. We want to preach it. We desire the Lord to use us and to send us. I know you do this. How many of you, you know, don't raise your hands because it's in your heart, but you know, you, you ask the Lord for those divine appointments. Oh God, please, I would love a divine appointment. I just would love to tell somebody about Jesus. It's that sensitivity to the Holy Spirit to know when to speak, how to speak, where to speak, where to preach, where to proclaim that good news. Again, we value the testimony of Jesus. We esteem those who share Jesus. We esteem the gospel of peace, that it is the good news that brings peace, reconciliation with God. We esteem what Jesus has done as glad tidings of good things. Fourthly, we are concentrated on filling our hearts with the word of God. We want our hearts to be filled with God's word, with the testimony of Jesus Christ. We want to understand. We want this readiness. And so we put more and more word. Again, going back to John chapter 2, when I was reading it this morning, I can remember how they were empty pots. And Jesus said, fill them with water, which is significant of his word. And when the pots were filled with water, Jesus changed it to wine and everybody was refreshed. The more we fill our hearts with his word, Jesus will do that miraculous transformation of making it wine where others can be refreshed and elated with joy. So we want the word of God because we want to grow in faith and we know According to Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know, I have found, my dad used to say, when you witness, paraphrase the word of God. Just get the word of God to other people. Just, you know, just say it. I remember, I've told you this before, but I was on an airplane one day with this woman. And she, she's, she asked me, you know, what were you doing? I said, well, I was, um, I was at a retreat. And she goes, oh, really? What were you doing there? And I said, I was teaching the Bible. <gasps> You teach the Bible? I said, yes. Well, then she kept saying, in my religion, in my religion, I had no idea what that religion was. But she started telling me, she said, can I just tell you how my weekend went and where my life is? She was a school teacher. In fact, she, was, she trained teachers to teach school in upper state New York. And this woman is pouring out her whole life to me. And so what I did is I kept paraphrasing the Bible. And I'm literally, the Holy Spirit was feeding me and I was just saying it out to this woman. And she said to me, you are one of the wisest women I have ever met. Everything you've said to me, it just, it makes my heart burn. And I said, okay, not heartburn, but heart, you know, burn. And uh, I said, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been telling you the word of God. I have just been giving you Bible verses, but I've been paraphrasing them a little bit just so that you could do that. She said, well, I've been raised a Christian science, but this is what I want. And so I wrote down the address of a Calvary and gave it to her in Jamestown. 
And she was like, please keep in touch with me. This, this, is, this is what I need. I know this is what I need. It was the most incredible time. But, you know, you can't have faith unless you hear the testimony of Jesus Christ. And God, we need to fill our hearts with the word of God so we can speak the word of God, so people can hear the word of God and come to faith. You know, God said in Isaiah chapter 55, as the rain comes down from heaven, waters the earth, so shall my word that comes out of my mouth be. It, it will give life to the seed and to the sower. It will not return to me void. God's word is living and powerful and will not return void. So we need to read the word of God. In fact, it's interesting because all throughout the New Testament, it tells us that we grow, we get strengthened through the knowledge of Jesus, through the knowledge of God. In other words, it's as we read about God, as we read about Jesus in the pages of scripture, our faith is strengthened. Our hearts are filled like those empty vessels. And again, the outcome is going to be God's word, the testimony of Jesus Christ. A healthy appetite is a sign of health. When you're not hungry for the word of God, it's a sign of heart problems. We, if you're not hungry for the word of God, you need to pray. You need to just take it to the Lord and say, here's my heart. There's an issue here. Lord, I want you to reign so much that I hunger again for your word. Then finally, we are committed to seeing the spread of the gospel. We get excited, just like you clapped about the Calvary thing at the Knesset. We get excited about hearing where the gospel is gone and the effect that it is having in lives, don't we? When we hear that thousands of people are coming to Jesus Christ in Iran on a daily basis, we get excited when we find out that there are more believers in China right now than there were during the time of the China Inland Mission we get excited when we find out that there's a huge revival going out in Africa and South America right now. We get excited that people are coming to faith and hearing the gospel. And we want, we want the gospel to spread. That's our desire. In 2 Peter 3, 9, we know that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to eternal life because he lives in our heart. We don't want anyone to perish. We have hope for the hopeless. We know that God can save to the uttermost all that come to Jesus Christ. We invest in the harvest. In Luke chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus said, you know what? The fields are widened to harvest. They're absolutely widened to harvest. So pray for God to raise up laborers for the harvest. And that's what we begin to do. We invest by praying. We invest by giving. We invest by volunteering. And we encourage those who are part of the harvest to sow 
those who are part of sowing the gospel, those who are part of cultivating or watering, and those who are reaping the harvest, we invest. Jesus dwelling in our hearts means it's not about thinking up the right things to say. It's not about drumming up the courage to witness. It's not about trying to fill our own hearts with greater courage. It's not working ourselves up into a witnessing frenzy. It's not about our efforts. It's about simply filling our hearts with Jesus. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He makes us when we follow. He makes us when we fill our hearts with Jesus. Our responsibility is to fill these earthen vessels with the water of his word, with prayer and asking more love for Jesus and that he would indwell us. And as we do that, he does the glorious processing. We ask him to take over our hearts. You know, when I find myself thinking or doing something bad, I don't blame others for like, you made me do it or you said this. I realize I've got an issue. I'm irritable. I'm, you know, that's a hateful thought. That's not a nice thing. That's in my heart. You know, as long as I say, oh, I don't know where that thing came from, I never get rid of it. But the minute I confess it, According to 1 John 1, 9, the minute I confess it, Lord, I don't want that in my heart and you don't want it in my heart and you showed me it was there. I ask you to take that out and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, which you promised to be faithful to do. It's gone and it's no longer a part of my anatomy. It can no longer lay claim to it. And Jesus gets a little more of my heart. You see, those are just unsurrendered places. And the minute I see it and give it to God, it becomes a surrendered place. Oh, isn't that what we want? Our hearts totally surrendered to Jesus so that the overflow of our hearts is Jesus' love and what Jesus has done. To have the heart of Jesus, we must have Jesus in our hearts. It's that simple. It's that easy. And when he is living in our hearts by faith, the confession, the conviction, the compelling, whatever else those seas were, will all be there. The need of the hour is very simple. The need of the hour is just to give our hearts more and more to Jesus. It's so simple and it's so good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, the, it's not about ascending to heaven It's not about descending to hell, atoning for ourselves. It's it's not about trying to fulfill the law. It's not about even our zeal. It's simply about letting you come into our hearts and rule and reign as you want to. Lord, when we come to unsurrendered places this week, may we not blame them on others. May we not... um, refuse to be open, but may we confess and give it to you so that our hearts become more and more and more under your leadership, under your rule, and more and more surrendered to the love and purposes of our great God and Savior, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.